0: As always, it is my pleasure that you've joined me for today's podcast of Second Chance Coaching. My name is Dr. Richard Lewis. If you'd be so kind as to leave me a rating and your feedback, I would very much appreciate it. And it'll help dynamic people such as yourself to optimally discover this podcast wherever you listen to this and your other favorite podcasts. As you know, in Second Chance Coaching, we focus on seeing everyday life through the eyes of the returning citizen and highlighting the resiliency of the human spirit. I certainly love to work with you one on one, whether you're a returning citizen or just a coaching client seeking your second chance, or if you're a representative of a business, college, or university seeking to integrate and support returning citizens in your organizational and learning environments. Please feel free to contact me at richard at secondchancecoaching.com or via Instagram at the Dr. Richard Lewis. Before we start with our topic of the day, I wanted to certainly take out the time to say thank you to all of you as we approach our first month in broadcasting this podcast. I am certainly overwhelmed with all the love and all the embracing that we've received through all the reviews and emails and texts and phone calls and Instagram direct messages. I've just been overwhelmed and so humbled by how this message has been received and how this movement's being embraced by everyone. You know, when you start a project and certainly a project that requires you to step out your comfort zone You're not really sure how people receive it. And certainly I have been so humbled and so surprised and so grateful that you as an audience have been ready to receive this message and have welcomed me as part of your library of podcasts and sharing your invaluable listening time with me. In this first month, I certainly wanted to send shout outs to to my listeners, to you, the listeners, certainly to the listeners here in Florida, certainly to the listeners in my forever hometown of New York. Lots of listeners in California. Much love. North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, Hawaii. I see all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Big, big thumbs up to Texas, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Illinois. I see you. Thank you. Thank you. Nevada, New Jersey, Michigan, Missouri. Thank you. I see you. Tennessee, Louisiana. I see you. I see you. Thank you so much. Thank you for the love. Our international partners, our international listeners worldwide, our friends in Colombia, our friends down under in Australia, thank you. Our friends in the Philippines and Russia, thank you for listening to us. I'm so humbled to have you guys join us on Second Chance Coaching, And I'm certainly excited that we've already have people and entities that have reached out to me who want to start working together. I'm excited for the success that we're looking that we're going to start doing and the adventures that we're going to have on these journeys together. If you guys have any topics or any areas of interest that you want me to cover on Second Chance Coaching, please reach out to me and let me know. Today, our topic is talking about relationships and reentry. Relationships, whether you're talking about family, professional, academic, friendships, or even romantic relationships, is all a part of our lives and certainly a part of the lives of returning citizens. For returning citizens, a critical part of their reentry is that first three years after they come home from prison, because that's where the challenges are biggest. And that's when recidivism could happen, is most vulnerable to happen. Because the returning citizen is trying to make sure they secure employment, secure housing, maybe they're going to school, maybe they're taking care of their overall wellness, maybe they're trying to balance probation parole obligations. They're definitely trying to maximize their successes, and take note of the lessons along the way, all while balancing relationships, family, professional, academic, friendships, romantic relationships, all that stuff is still there while the returning doing is doing that, especially in the critical part of reentry in that first three years. There's an ongoing part of reentry for returning citizens as well. The rest of our lives is is, is part of our reentry process for the rest of our lives. And relationships is something that we have to balance along with that. I started off talking about family relationships. And in my experience, the family relationships for me was headed by my mom. My mom certainly was my biggest cheerleader, and she was a leader of the relationships I had with the rest of my family. Mom was really proactive. She even felt that going to therapy would be good for me to speak about my incarceration experience because she knew then that going to therapy and being proactive about my wellness was gonna be part of me finding my voice, finding part of me finding comfort, finding peace after going through the traumatic experience of having your freedom taken away from you. I was happy to be in the presence of my sister as well, She was certainly very supportive, but she definitely had her hands full as well. She was taking care of my niece, and my niece was only eight months old when I came home. But even my niece, her presence, her eight-month-old that discovering the world or seeing the world through the eyes of an eight-month-old was so healing and so soothing. My children, my children were a big part of that as well. I always tell my children that being their dad is going to be the greatest accomplishment that I'll ever achieve in my life. And speaking love into them and getting that love returned from them was a great healing mechanism. My daughter and son being a part of their lives and them being a part of my life, I couldn't ask for anything more. As my daughter got older, now she's a grown woman, she did say that she did notice sadness and some emptiness and some anger with me during that time when I first came home. Oh. I was a little distressed when I heard about that, and I told her, to, did she feel like she wasn't loved by me at all? She said no. She knew that we that she was loved, and she knew that she was being cared for, and she said my, my son felt the same way. But she said that she felt that that sadness and emptiness and that anger, that little bit that she saw in me, she, she and him were worried about me because she felt like that was a place in my heart that they couldn't heal, they couldn't feel, they couldn't touch. My son felt the same way, and we, had those, we would have those conversations as well. Unfortunately, as some of you may know or may not know, my son passed away four and a half years ago. And when I went to bereavement counseling after his passing and talked about my feelings and my experience of being a father who had to say goodbye to their own child, it was during that therapy those therapy sessions I spoke for the first time about my experience of being incarcerated. and it certainly helped. There were some negative aspects as well. I spoke about how family friends and loved ones were so blessed were so blessing and so welcoming to me when I came back. and that was true for the majority of family, friends and loved ones. But there was some family and some so-called friends and associates, that was certainly very judgmental and spoke the worst of me and definitely did not want to see me do well and was very judgmental of me. Certainly none of them had the manhood or the womanhood to speak their mind to my face. It made me very angry because I felt like I wanted to make sure that I was able to, if we're not going to be, if we're not going to get along with each other, let's say to each other's face what we feel about each other and then call it a day. I'd be so angry and I would express that anger to my mother and my mother was so wise. I appreciated her wisdom back then, and I appreciate it even more now. Even in my anger, my mom would just stop me and sit me down. For those of you who had the honor of meeting my mother, my mother was, you know, five foot five foot something, but she was strong. She was a brick wall. And she would say in her tender, sweet Haitian accent, Rich, let me give you an advice. <laughs> my sister knows what that sounds like. I didn't mispronounce it. It was definitely my mother saying, let me give you an advice. We heard that so many times, and I certainly know I could speak for my sister and say that I we still wish we could hear that phrase today from her. And my mother, when she would give her advice, or in her words, give you an advice, she would say to me, Rich, remember this, for people who know you, there's no explanation that's necessary. For people who do not know you, no explanation will be enough. She also went on to say, when people speak bad about you, think ill of you or mistreat you, it's not about you. It is a reflection of how they feel about themselves. I received all that good advice and I heard what mom was saying. But I said to my mom, I said, mom, what do I do when this happens? Mom was a God-fearing woman. so So she always went to her faith. And then she would say this little phrase, all you have to do is pray. And my sister also would remember this when we would hear that. We're like, Mom, do you have something else that you could share with us? Mom, we need some more earth-shattering and mega-revealing advice. But what we didn't realize is all you have to do is pray. That's the advice. That is the earth-shattering and mega-revealing advice she was sharing with us. In the silence and the still of your room, in the silence of your heart, Mom would say, close your eyes and pray. And I said, well, Mom, what do I say to God? And she'd always say, say what's in your heart. God, I need your help. God, give me your strength. God, give me your clarity. God, give me endurance. God, grant me serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. I remember when my mother passed away, one of my cousins told me in the in the immediate aftermath of her passing, she said, your mama gave you everything you needed, and you know in that moment, I said, what I really need is for her to still be here, to be alive. But my cousin continued to say, listen, her, her job was done. Her, her mission was accomplished. And you know what? He was right. And mom was right. Life as a returning citizen is not easy. Whether it's day one or day 7031, it's not easy. But guess what? Life not being easy is not unique to returning citizens. And you know what else is not unique to returning citizens and available to all of us? The ability to overcome challenges and get the most out of this life. Because remember what mom said, all you have to do is pray. That's love being spoken into me. That's someone speaking love into you. If you have no one speaking that love into you, I'll speak that love into you. My mom is speaking that love into you right now. All you have to do is pray. You have everything that you need. As I transition to professional and academic challenges, when it comes to work, we all have jobs. We all have organizational politics that we deal with. We all have difficult people, unpleasant people, and unpleasant situations that we deal with at work. We'll talk about that at future podcasts. When it comes to work situations that are difficult, I'll once again say, remember what mom said. It's not about, it's about them. It's not about you. In an academic setting, sometimes academic settings could be ruthless as well. I remember when I started my doctoral program, we were part of a Fort Lauderdale cohort, Fort Lauderdale cohort 33. We were a random group of folks that came together and ended up being a pretty headstrong group we had a reputation that was built very quickly. The administration didn't particularly like us too much as a group. We certainly was a group that pushed to know what classes we had to take next, what requirements were of us, were required of us in the program. We wanted classes that were in person, we did not want to be pushed online, and we were a very competent group. I'm proud to say that 100% of our cohort graduated with our doctoral degrees. So we were cer- we we certainly pushed, we worked hard, we pushed hard. We did it and we did it. My dissertation chairperson was my first professor in the program. He was an outstanding academic, an outstanding, brilliant scholar. But as good as he was as an academic and as a scholar, he was just as morally bankrupt as an individual. Towards the end of my process, towards the end of my program, they had at the school what was called Dissertation of Distinction Awards. My chairperson was excited. He he was excited. He would totally talk about my dissertation all the time. He would say, no, your dissertation will win dissertation of distinction, no doubt. I'm going to nominate you for the process, no doubt about it. We're going to get this. We're going to do this. No problem. Submitted it. I didn't get dissertation of distinction. Certainly, I was disappointed. But in my mind, I wanted to be a great academic scholar, not just a good one. I wasn't worried about the dissertation of distinction contest. That contest was already lost. But I wanted to get feedback from the director of dissertation services and say, can you tell me what it is that I didn't do right so when my future research, I could be from good to great. Certainly that inquiry was not met well. It was told, well, we don't share with you how we did the dissertation of distinction process. And at that point, that that disturbed me a little bit. I said, well, how come I can't just know what I did wrong or what I did right? So I get that feedback. If it's just a subjective process, that's not particularly right. Going through that pushback, I didn't get make a lot of friends with the director of dissertation services or the dean of the program. I started being looked upon like as a sore loser. And there was a lot of emails going back and forth. And my dissertation chairperson was a part of that, was seeing those, those emails. And he didn't really say anything. And I guess I understood where he was coming from. He works at the institution. So he can't, you know, push back so much. But the thing that I thought that was wrong was when the director of dissertation services basically was saying I was being a sore loser because of course we understand and we know that your son passed away while you're in the program. So maybe this is just part of your mourning being manifested. Certainly I took that as an insult. It was an insult and certainly was meant to be an insult. And I remember saying that these people are not to speak of my son, and I remember saying that to her. And certainly, even to this day, none of us are missing Christmas cards with one another. But I still remember going back to what my mom said. It's about them. It's not about you. Towards the end of my dissertation process, I still was working with my dissertation chairperson. We co-published a chapter in the international textbook with him and another classmate of mine. Now, that classmate, I didn't mistake her as being a friend of mine or not, but, you know, we're just going through the publishing process, not a problem. It was an international textbook. We were the only American authors in that textbook, so it it went pretty well. The thing that was insulting and why I said that my dissertation chair was morally bankrupt, because he then took that chapter and presented it at a conference with my classmate, and he presented it without me. He didn't even cite me as a co-author, even if I wasn't present didn't ask me if I wanted to present with him. In the academic world, that's almost like tantamount to academic plagiarism. And they did that less than two months after my mom passed away. It was a hard pill to swallow. But even with my mom passing away, I still had to say to myself, it's not about them. It's not about you. It's about them. Moving on to friendships. I certainly had, I certainly, as I indicated in earlier podcasts, I have great friends. I'm so rich and so blessed to have friends friends in my life or true true blue friends that I have. I know that it was difficult for them when I went away. And I know at some points they didn't know how to support me. Hell, I didn't even know how to support me or tell them how to support me. But nevertheless, my friends gave me a lot of love while I was gone. They did their best. They visited, they sent books, packages, letters, and all those helped while I was away. That made a big difference. But they definitely spoke loving to me, especially when I came home. They spoke loving to me and saw things in myself that I didn't see in myself. They knew that I had value. They said, listen, you're a dad of two great children, two great children who love you. In addition, I was a godfather of cousins on both sides of my family. And then I became the god godfather of the children of one of my dearest friends. And they are godparents. They were godparents to my son as well. I'll never forget that. When all that love is around you, it's a beautiful thing, having good friends, really good friends that speak love through their actions. I remember at the end of 2015, two of my dear childhood friends at the end of the the holidays, we'd always text each other and say, Happy New Year. We should get together. We should get together. We should do this next year. We should do that next year. I remember saying to them, let's be intentional about it. Let's do it. Let's make sure we get together. Let's meet in New York City. In summer 2016, we'll have a guys weekend, we'll go to a Yankee game, and we solidified it. Little did we know we'd be reunited earlier than we thought we would. We were reunited in May 2016 at my son's funeral. Telling you, my dear friends, those guys, all my dear friends that showed up there, they certainly held me up, sometimes even physically, when I didn't think holding me up was even possible. They even said to me that I was being strong. I said, nope. I was only strong because of them. I was only strong because of mom, watching my mom comfort her son while she's mourning her grandson. And even then my mom saying, all you have to do is pray because she knew God would be there for us. I also have to send some special love to my high school classmates. <laughs> my high school, St. John's Prep in a store in New York, specifically the class of 1989. Our 30 year high school reunion was in 2019. It was held on Mother's Day weekend which was just two weeks after my mother's funeral. I almost decided not to go, but they spoke love and encouragement into me. And I went to New York, had a great time at the reunion post and pre-reunion, had that one-on-one time I needed as well with mom at the cemetery to wish her a happy Mother's Day. The remainder of the year, four of my high school classmates came to South Florida at different times. One invited me to dinner, to have dinner with his parents and his fiance at, at his parents' house. Two, I gave them the South Florida tour, told them they to, to make sure that they gave me a high Yelp rating as I showed them around. One of them visited their relatives in Homestead, which is a far ride from where I lived, but I made sure I saw them and it was a great time. One of my friends even discovered axe throwing. Yes, axe, like a wooden an axe, axe throwing in Fort Lauderdale. I did not know that we even had axe throwing in Fort Lauderdale. But we spent a great time doing that, had a great time doing that. And that's, that's friends through their actions speaking loving to you and remembering mom's words that all you have to do is pray and your angels will appear. The last type of relationship I'll talk about is romantic relationships. Sometimes those could be the funniest ones and the funniest acting ones. I remember when I first came home, you know, as I went through the dating circles, I reunited with, with some old flames and then met some new ones along the way. And the challenges that were unique with them was that not so much that we weren't able to have a relationship, but they didn't seem to understand the bounds that I had when it came to parole. They didn't understand that I had a curfew. I couldn't just go out and stay and hang out. Couldn't spend the night at your house because I had to be back at my house. I didn't like some of the intrusive questions they would ask when they would say, well, what was prison like? Almost like to trivialize your experience or question your innocence like, "Well, tell me what happened." One thing I told them was I wasn't going to tell them what prison was like unless I chose to want to tell them myself. I wasn't going to trivialize my experience, and I wasn't going to go on trial again talking about my innocence in their eyes. And myself and other returning citizens, you always have to know to establish your boundaries and establish your value. Only you could do that. People may be curious about what prison is like. They may have their own views of their of your experience. They may even question your innocence, but certainly you establish the boundaries of what you will and will not tolerate or put up with. In August 2008, when I started working for my current employer, I went and did what a lot of people did who were single. I went on Match.com, I went online, and I looked to see if I could find someone to date, looked on online dating. When I told mom about that, mom was like, huh? I don't know about that online dating stuff. You know, mom, at the end of the day, was still old fashioned as well. She's like, no, I'm old school. I don't believe in meeting someone online. Why can't you just meet someone at the beach or at the library or whatever? That's how she used to say it. But I met someone on Match.com and we worked in the same industry, although we worked at different places. We we met, we spoke on the phone a little bit, ended up going on our first date. And what's the objective after the first date? Go out on your second date and then go out on your third date and then your fourth date then your fifth date. And then we really ended up really seeing each other. A few months into the relationship, we decided, okay, let's set up a romantic weekend. Let's have a romantic weekend where we could hang out. In the state of Florida, if you're familiar with Florida, we have a lot of places where you could staycation. You go to Naples, you go to Key West, you go to St. Augustine. There's so many beaches. There's so many places that you could have a lot of good, fun time to staycation and not really have to go uh, far and above anywhere. And, it, and you can do it economically. So I'm at her house and we're preparing for this romantic weekend and we're packing up our stuff. We're packing up snacks doing the things that we doing, the last minute things that we need to do. And we're having a conversation. And at that point, she shared something very private, very intimate with me. I felt we were having a really good moment. We were connecting at that point. When she shared what she shared with me, I understood I was being an active listener. I told her that I understood where she was coming from. And then that's, and I accept her for who she is. You know, everything was, everything was good. Being that we had that moment and she shared something very intimate with me, I said, okay, well, I want to share something with you. At the time, it was only, I was only eight years removed, but I shared with her my incarceration story and my reentry story. At that moment, things seemed to slow down really quick. She got really quiet. Really, really quiet. And then all of a sudden, she reacted. She got angry with me. She said, why didn't I tell her about me being incarcerated when we first met? Did did I have an understanding of what she just told me and what kind of consequence that would have on us? She was getting really mad. So, so mad that I thought this was going to cancel our trip. And so, so mad because I said, I know I established my boundaries. I was about to cancel this relationship. I was confused. I was like, I feel like I'm on trial again. And I was certainly not happy about that. But as things slowed down, I took a moment and I remembered once again, I went back to my mom and what she said. She remembered what she said. If they know you, no explanation is necessary. If they don't know you, no explanation will be good enough. And then I heard my mom say, all you have to do is pray. I didn't pray for a specific outcome at that moment. I didn't pray that she would stop being mad. I didn't pray that our romantic weekend will be salvaged. I basically pray that God will have whatever happens is supposed to happen, will happen. This woman standing in front of me, I've accepted her for her good, bad, ugly, and indifferent. She'll have to accept me for my good, bad, ugly, and indifferent. And it's gonna ha- it's gonna it's either gonna be good enough or it won't. She got over it. it. We ended up having a good weekend and we went out of town together and we dated for another two years. Our relationship ended not because of anything with reentry. She's lo- we've lost touch. And I'm confident she's doing well, and I'm and I don't say this share the story to say that she's a bad person, because certainly she could be on this podcast and and tell you a completely different side from her perspective as to what happened that day. But in my mind, I felt like during the course of the relationship, I was going to be more cautious as far as what I shared with her because I felt like if I share something so intimate with you, a part of me that tells you who I am and how I am today, and that's how you reacted initially, I'm gonna be hesitant as to what I share with you going forward. But certainly as things have gone forward and as I've got my own voice, I figure that you know what, I share with people what it is that needs to be shared with. Them. So when we look at relationships, whether it be family, friendships, professional, academic, romance, there's a couple of things I certainly wanna tell you as you balance that out with your reentry journey. Number one, Always remember what mom said. She's my mom, but certainly I I can share with you and say, hey, she's mom talking to you as well. Always remember, it's always about them. When they mistreat you or say something bad about you, it's always about them. It's never about you. Work on making sure that you accept and you see the love in you, see the goodness in you. Accept your good, bad, ugly, and indifferent. Remember, you're unique and you have a lot to offer. Love has been spoken into you and you've been given everything that you need. And going back to mom again, no matter what faith that you that you decide to, that you undertake, all you have to do is pray. Have silent surroundings. Make sure you spend quiet time with yourself every day. Meditate and pray and talk to God and let God talk to you. Once again, if you'd like to work one-on-one as a returning citizen or as a coaching client or representative of a business, college, or university, feel free to contact me at richard at secondchancecoaching.com or via Instagram at the Dr. Richard Lewis. I'd love to work with you. I'd love for us to work together. Remember, you've been blessed to see another day. You've been blessed with your second chance. So make the best of it. I love you all. Take care and be well.